0: Hello, everyone. I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Today, we take up leadership lessons from the Oscar-winning movie, Gladiator.
1: In these discussions, we draw, we hope, for interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics, to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. We're continuing our annual February series on uh, Best Picture winners from the Academy Awards. And today we're going to discuss the 2000 Best Picture winner, Gladiator, um, starring Russell Crowe, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, Richard Harris. Um, it actually won five five uh, Oscars that year for Best Picture, Best Actor for Crowe, Best Costume Design, Best Sound, and Best Visual Effects. Um... I, I really like this movie. My wife really likes this movie. Um, um, I've actually watched it a couple of times over the years after it came out. Um, but where would you like to start in our discussion of the themes, Tom?
0: Well, uh, I really enjoyed uh, this movie as well. Um, actually, probably uh, maybe you could give the storyline and then we could talk about some of our favorite scenes and then some of the lessons that we've been able to draw from this movie.
1: The movie starts uh, in the campaign in Germania with Emperor Marcus Aurelius and his uh, general Maximus Decimus Meridius, who is the Russell Crowe character, um, fighting the the barbaric German hordes. After a more or less victory, um, a dying Marcus Aurelius um, tells uh, Maximus that he wants him to become emperor and to save Rome and revert to a Republican form of government. Uh, At that point, his son Commodus kills Marcus Aurelius and attempts to kill Maximus, uh, does succeed in murdering his family, and uh, he ends up as a slave in, in North Africa, becomes a gladiator under the tutelage of Oliver Reed's character Proximo, ends up back in Rome, fighting in the Colosseum and um, tries to lead an uprising that would overthrow Commodus and replace the Senate as the main uh, govern- government in Rome, but uh, fails at that and is eventually forced to fight Commodus in a single combat in the arena. Commodus uh, cheats by stabbing him before the fight. Um, he successfully kills Commodus, but then dies in the arena.
0: Yeah. So I had a a couple and they really spoke to both the cinematic presence of, uh, the movie and the spectacle nature of the movie. And I wanted to start with the initial battle scene. Um, I read somewhere and I don't know if it's true or not, but there were more than 50,000 arrows shot. In that initial battle scene, and at one point, literally, um, you would be fighting in the shade because the arrows had blotted out the sun. And uh, that really, um, that battle scene uh, with thousands of extras—I'm sure there were military troops involved or some very, very large number of um, men—really showed the the chaotic nature of Roman warfare, or at least r- warfare in the second century AD, that uh, it's one of the best presentations I thought of of that, and how uh, Maximus really was uh, a great general going forward uh, at that point and uh, deserved the position that he had in the Roman army. But that just totally chaotic battle scene, Uh, with uh, uh, arrows on fire, um, different types of arrows, arrows shot very high, arrows shot very straight, Um, and horses and then the Roman legions moving forward, uh, to me was a great representation of the insanity and chaos of a Roman-era battlefield. So uh, that was scene one. Scene two is is similar in nature, but it's in the Coliseum. And the, they built a replica Coliseum, I think about 20% the size of the real Coliseum for these shots and these scenes. So they had to use a lot of uh, uh, different cutaway shots. And, and I don't think they called it CGI when this movie came out, but So, um, and then, uh, but the scene was when after the first time Maximus fights in the Colosseum and he has the helmet on to hide his um, identity uh, from um, the Emperor's son, uh, the Joaquin Phoenix character, Comanus, and uh, he uh, is forced to take his helmet off and Comodus sees who it is, and Cominus immediately wants to slay him or have his guards slay him in the uh, Colosseum. But the crowd, because of the way Maximus has fought, uh, wants to spare him. And at that moment, it shows the power of the Roman crowd and how public opinion, uh, even if only for a short time, can be swayed or could have been swayed in Rome uh, to force the emperor to change a decision that he wanted to make. And I I recognize all of that's apocryphal. We're talking about fictional characters. Nevertheless, uh, I thought that was a a very powerful scene that demonstrated uh, something we've talked about in in other podcasts on this series, which is about the, the power of the populace of Rome to if not dictate events influence events yeah. and so those those are the two kind of scenes that really struck me in in watching this movie uh, again for this podcast uh, although I have to say that first battle scene first time I saw this movie just blew me away with yeah. all those arrows in the sky
1: the first battle scene was incredible um, one of the things that I actually felt sort of cold because of the the snow and the furs and everything. But the uh, the historical accuracy with the the equipment, the armor, um, and and the tactics, I thought was was first class. The other thing I'd, I'd like to point out is um, with respect to Rome and the Colosseum and so forth, I thought the special effects for this movie held up really well, um, despite being over twenty years old now. I think some of my favorite scenes were the ones with Oliver Reed as the uh, gladiator entrepreneur. um, The scenes, especially the ones with Maximus, where he describes the life of the gladiator um, and the importance of winning the crowd and being an entertainer. And then there's a scene where uh, Maximus tries to get him involved in the plot to restore the Senate. And his answer is, why would I want to kill Commodus? He's making me rich and I'm just an entertainer. And he subsequently does join the plot and is killed he acted actually was his last role. He, he died during filming. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested what his character would have been, um, if he hadn't died and they, uh, and they had to kill him that quickly. But anyway, the other thing I loved was Joaquin Phoenix's facial expressions during the, uh, during the gladiatorial combat scenes. They're just wonderful. Um, they show that he is, um, uh, truly insane. Um, but in an evil way. So, um, I think the movie is, is <laughs> got some interesting life lessons. Um, and Marcus Aurelius, I know you and I have both read his Meditations uh, probably several times. But what do you think about how that uh, impacts the movie? And uh,
0: so it was just a, a small por- portion because. Uh, Marcus Aurelius only lives or is present in the movie for a short period of time, maybe less than 10 minutes if we take out the battle scene. But anytime you have Marcus Aurelius in print or in movie, you're going to get some stoicism. And uh, because you have to remember, he literally is the most powerful person on earth. He can have or do anything he wants anytime. Yet he has dictated to himself a code to live by that we have explored, you know, in other podcasts on this series. Um, and that still resonates with with many people today, with many philosophers today, with many business leaders today. And so, the for me, the power of, of Marcus Aurelius always exists, even if it's just to say I'm Marcus Aurelius on screen <laughs> um, and talk a few words about or hear a few words of, you know, some faux stoic, uh, philosophy. Um, but the other couple of things that uh, I'm not quite sure we, we really have explored, perhaps, that I wanted to bring up, which is, and it ties a little bit into the first uh, battle scene uh, and its power for me, is that really the only thing, even in Rome, even with the most powerful person on earth, even with the most powerful empire the world had ever seen at that, up to that point in time, um, the only constant was change and constant change. And Marcus Aurelius, uh, uh, it was almost, um, synthesis, uh, or rather thesis antithesis, antithesis and synthesis, the dialectic, uh, as information comes in and he has to change and then, uh, the decisions made and you change more information comes in. You have to change again and you make the decision and do change. And that, uh, that the constant of a business leader are these recalibrations. And I know in, an, uh, I think in our last podcast, I talked about why I found information so important for a business leader, but that's that's really it. Because uh, every move is a series of recalibrations, uh, whether it be uh, a merger and acquisition, whether it be a purchase, whether it be a, a new business line, or, or really you name the business decision. It's all a, a series of recalibrations to help you in the marketplace it used to be your marketplace was your shareholders well now it's expanded out quite a bit and we have stakeholders and we have multiple stakeholders and it's it's not even a three-dimensional chess game anymore it's a five-dimensional or maybe even more chess game so uh, the only constant is change and that uh, finally um, you know sometimes life is just isn't fair and I suppose, you and I probably are as well qualified to talk about that as, as any people are. But that's, that's not really what matters. And my father always, you know, tried to, to tell me it doesn't matter if you get kicked in the teeth. It's what do you do afterwards? And in many ways, that's, that's I think, valid. And um, it's, you know, what you learn from it. Whether you say there's no winning and there's no losing, only winning and learning lessons or whether it's how you get up, it's uh, if one door closes, another door opens, and having the courage to walk through it, it whatever the platitude you want to put around it, um, that in addition to the only constant being change, you have to move forward when things uh, don't go as you planned or or, or worse. So um, those were kind of the things I drew from uh, this iteration of of marcus aurelius in this movie uh but um maybe wanted to see if if you saw some different things we'll be right back with more from 12 o'clock high after a quick message from our sponsor The Stoicism is, is
1: part of the um, reason that some of the characters are willing to, to risk death, because under Stoic philosophy, death is regarded as inevitable and really almost a non-event. Um, but you should live your life as though you were ready to die at any moment, um, which happened a lot in Rome, apparently, uh, at least under Commodus. That, um, you never knew which moment would be your last. Um, as to your point about information, one of the things I had really not noticed as much was Commodus is a master of information. He has an incredibly good spy network and uh, knows pretty much everything that's going on and who's involved, who's talked with who. Um, it's not detailed in the movie, but he's, um, he's almost uh, a godlike figure in terms of knowing um, who's plotting against him. Which of course is most people, so I guess that makes it a little easier. Um, the other thing was the importance of of an ultimate goal. Um, the senator Gracchus and uh, and Maximus, and I guess Marcus Aurelius, although he, as you pointed out, he's he's on screen for probably ten minutes, um, was to change Rome back to a, to a golden era. And as we've covered in some of these podcasts, it really wasn't all that golden for, for most of the period um, so I think one of one of the lessons of this even fictionalized is um, you need to have a clearer idea of your goals and basing them on some um, wishful idea of what what could be may not necessarily be the, the best long-term strategy um, I think there are also a fair number of um, straightforward business leadership lessons. Uh,
0: and I think some of these we've we've talked about in other contexts in this podcast series, but um, the uh, you know you do have to lead and uh, lead from the front. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, servant leadership in the most recent podcast. So that involves creating a great teamwork and really create an atmosphere for others. Uh, to succeed. I uh, mentioned a little bit earlier, kind of ties into life is not always fair, um, but there's no losing, only learning and winning. Um, fortunately, it took me a long time to learn that one. Um, but there's one that I'd like to focus on, and I'm not quite sure we have focused on quite as much in the past, Richard. And um, it certainly ties directly to uh, being a gladiator uh, or any other type of physical Exertion, whether you're a professional athlete or a weekend warrior, um, but it's trained hard and practice. I'm not sure in the corporate world we talk enough about training hard and practice. And I don't mean getting out running stands or wind sprints or being in top physical condition at age 55, 45, 65, or anything in between. But I mean if you have a disaster recovery plan, and I hope you have a disaster recovery plan, because if you live in the part of the world where Richard and I live, you can have weather events which could knock you out and have happened on a regular basis, uh, from snow apocalypse to uh, thousand-year floods uh, in a period of a few years. But it's not just having a disaster recovery plan, it's practicing your disaster recovery plan. It's not having a cyber security protocol of who to notify if you have a cyber attack. It's actually practicing it uh, because if you are attacked or you're breached and you get a ransomware demand before you know the breach has occurred, you're in a big world of trouble. And are you then trying to figure out, do we call the FBI now or do we call them later? Um you, you need to have a, a plan for that, but you have to practice that plan. It's the same as, as something as simple as a Sarbanes-Oxley mandated whistleblower program. Yes, you have to have a whistleblower program, but have you ever checked your whistleblower line? One of the most famic, famous apocryphal stories in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act world is where a company was about to, in their final settlement discussion with the Department of Justice back when you used to meet in Washington, the DOJ lawyer excused herself, and it was a her. She went to her office, called the hotline, and got a non-working number. And there's just no excuse for that. Um, now, as catas- I don't, all apocryphal stories are based somewhere along the line in some basis of truth, but I don't know if that story is true or not, but You have to have a working hotline. But have you checked your working hotline to see if it works, let alone whether you're actually going to respond to it? But you have to have a policy. You have to have a protocol in place. And there are a wide variety of of, um, situations I hope we can take up on this podcast Uh, Boeing at some point because it turns out after the second 737 MAX crash, that was the first time the board had been notified by management. Now, of course, the board had read about it in the paper, but they weren't even notified of the crashes on a, on a safety basis, or, um, uh, nor did the board ask about the crashes. So that tells you it was irresponsibility on both management and the board. So uh, if you have an uh, existential risk to your company because of the services or products your company provides – um, you need to have a protocol in place to manage that risk if you have a catastrophic failure. Bluebell Ice Cream was a one product company, a ice cream company, and food product company. And when they had a hysteria outbreak, they had no mechanism to elevate that to the board of directors. And they were uh, not only fined, penalized so greatly, uh, they paid uh, over $60 million in a shareholder lawsuit and had to sell majority of the company, uh, to keep going. So if you have whatever your product or service is, if there's a catastrophic failure and it can lead to an existential crisis, you need to plan for that. And um, that's a message, that, like I said, Richard, I know I went off on my eyes for a little bit, but I don't think we talk about that enough and we don't talk about practicing, uh, whether you know, you're know you a pro football team in the film room or, or whatever it may be, but train hard and practice for those truly potentially catastrophic events. Um, one of the great stories that came out of Hurricane Harvey was the response of the grocery chain H-E-B, who is now the model of emergency response. Well, I've studied them quite a bit, and they routinely practice emergency response. And um, it showed when the emergency came, and lots of companies can learn from that. So, that's really the the message I wanted to try to communicate is is one of the most important that I took away from this movie.
1: Well, I mean that that is a great point that without practicing it, it's you have no idea if the plan's going to work. Um, you know you have no idea if your backup generator will start. Well, that's not a very good backup generator. The HEB uh, grocery store chain has really been um, doing some inspiring work and logistical uh, flexibility. Not just in the event of uh, the hurricanes and tropical storms, but um, as a result of the COVID supply chain disruptions, which they have handled uh, much better than than some of the other grocery stores. That, that's a great point. And I guess the other thing is is the teamwork. Um, the the only way Maximus survives the first uh, battle in the uh, in the Roman Colosseum is through teamwork. And it helps that most of the other gladiators have had military training um, and are used to working together uh, as teams in that circumstance, which kind of lucky, I guess. The importance of teamwork is also true with it has to be practiced. Um, Unlike the scene in the the movie, it would be very helpful if they'd been able to work through some of the formations they were going to have to use um, prior to needing them. Um, on the subject of teamwork, I guess there are a couple of relationships, personal relationships, uh, with the Maximus character that we both found very interesting, um, one of whom is really sort of the sole uh, survivor, um, the character Juba uh, from somewhere in Africa. Uh, but uh, what, what did you think about the relationships with, uh, Maximus's relationships with uh, Juba and Proximo?
0: So uh, Juba is in many ways the person uh, uh sort of heart and soul of the movie in in terms of his conscience and he's uh, also a slave and he becomes a confidant to Maximus and I think really tries to counsel him, uh, from a conscience point of view. Um, the Proximo character, uh, for both of us, I think is, is almost beloved because of, um, who it was, um, and um it was his Oliver's last movie, uh so that that meant a lot, uh, I think, as well. And they used a body double to shoot uh, additional scenes for him uh, after he passed away so uh but the proximo character was uh also, I thought, uh uh grounded in uh, another type of inner dialogue, or at least. Uh, dialogue that needed to be running throughout the movie, which was counseling that he provided to Maximus, and the um, also his desire not to be a part of any revolt. Because you guys correctly noted, uh, Commodus made him a lot of money, so why would he want to interrupt his supply chain of need and his ability to supply gladiators from the from the front? Um, so um, and. If I could just throw in, it wasn't because communists was having more games and they were slaughtering more gladiators. as was they were moving the gladiators into the fighting army because the quality of the army had dropped so much. So they needed gladiators from the provinces, which they didn't previously need as much. So that's why Proximo uh, was able to um, uh, make so much money. But the Oliver Reed, it being his last movie, that made it even more poignant. And, uh, so Oliver Reed started acting in the early sixties and he acted in many of the movies. Uh, he was a heartthrob at one time and then he took to drinks so that kind of led him down a different path. And, um, but he was still a, a favorite of, of many people, including myself. So to, to have him in the movie and, and when he did pass away, it made it even more poignant, but he did have lots of wisdom that he imparted to Maximus, um, about running a business and uh, preparing and that train hard and practice that I uh, harped on for quite some time, I think really was, if it didn't come from Proxima, it was inspired by him. What yeah. were your thoughts?
1: Well, I, I agree. I'm, I'm delighted that the Juba character um, survived the movie um, and was, was freed, apparently. Um, and he does provide a grounding and, and a personal contact I mean, he actually saves uh, Maximus's life by putting maggots in his wounds uh, to clean the dead tissue. Um, he does serve as sort of a conscience and, and grounding in the, uh, the importance of uh, their families. And his is still alive, but he'll never see them again. And Maximus is, is dead, and uh, he expects to see them in the afterlife, which is, of course, not a very stoic concept, but... Um, but it is important. But what are your final thoughts on, on the movie as a whole, Tom? Did, did it hold up for you after?
0: You know, it did, and and you were also spot on that the uh, CGI or, or whatever they called it back then in 2000, uh, the special effects really, I still I think, still held up. There was one scene about the one-third way through the movie where Commodus tries to uh, kill him by pairing him, off, pairing him off with the top gladiator and then uh, putting uh, some tigers around him so that uh, uh, the tigers were all CGI. So I thought that worked. But as a cinematic movie, uh, I thought it worked well in terms of business.
1: Well, I thought the movie held up well. As I mentioned before, I thought the special effects were still good. I found the, um, the personal relationships good. The Oliver Reed character, of course, we've discussed at length. Um, but also the, the character of Lucilla played by Connie Nielsen, um, trying to navigate the imperial palace and keep her son alive in the presence of a, a homicidal, uh, maniac of an emperor is, is a pretty affecting character as well. Um, so yeah, if you haven't seen it in a while, I'd suggest you see it. Um, one thing I, I thought parts of it dragged a bit, um, that uh, this is a movie that would benefit from a theater room or a large screen, um, rather than just a, a television screen, and some of it was quite dark in the in the copy I was looking at. But um, but anyway, I, I think it was a a wonderful movie and deserving a best picture that year. That's it for this time with Twelve O'clock High with Tom Fox and Richard Lummis. We hope you enjoyed this, and will join us for subsequent episodes. We'll be continuing our our Oscar. Uh, wrap up for another couple of uh, episodes, and then we'll get back to regular leadership challenges.
0: This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership where we focused on Schindler's List. As Richard mentioned, we linked to several of the resources we reviewed in preparing for this podcast in addition to watching the movie. Over the next four weeks, we're going to take up four For three additional best-winning Oscar pictures, including Gladiator, Platoon, and A Man for All Seasons. I hope you will check out each of these over the next three consecutive weeks as we continue our annual exploration of leadership lessons from Oscar-winning best-picture movies on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. This podcast is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.